Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. As is usual, I have a couple of uh, things to go over. Um, actually, just one major one. And if this is something that I'm going to be talking about, something that is of interest to uh, people who have been uh, following and, and supporting my channel and uh, sort of what's going on with, with some internal, uh, not, not internal, but with some workings of my channel. If this is something that is, you know, of no interest to you whatsoever and you just want to get on with the questions and don't want to hear me going on about, you know, various things that I feel I really need to tell you guys about, uh, then you can skip to this point here. I'm going to put it on the screen where I will start talking about answering questions. But if you are interested in uh, what I have to say here, then please keep listening. Okay. Um, the YouTube has recently been making some pretty systemic big changes to its ad structure. Uh, this has been called Adpocalypse, uh, where YouTube creators are having many of their videos demonetized um, because YouTube is changing, is listening more to its advertisers than it is to its content creators. And this is, you know, fairly predictable, I suppose. I mean, YouTube is, I'm not I'm not trying to deride YouTube particularly, although I am extremely disappointed in YouTube uh, because it is called YouTube, so it's supposed to be for, you know, content creators. And now, because it has been bought by Google and it has, you know, become this multi-billion dollar corporation that is only really interested in making billions more, uh, it's now moving into streaming services and YouTube Red and YouTube TV and this sort of thing, and it's kind of leaving a lot of us little guys behind. So those of us who have been, you know, utilizing YouTube as a platform to, con you know, to create content and throw it out here for y'all, uh, that, that, that function is still there, but the idea of getting ad revenue uh, as a YouTube partner is kind of going by the wayside and in, in to a great degree because of uh, what is deemed advertiser-friendly content. And that is a very arbitrary thing. There are some very general guidelines in, on the part of YouTube as to what is or isn't advertiser-friendly. And apparently, my videos are not. Uh, so I have had uh, videos demonetized that I did not even know were demonetized until I literally had to go through the, the list of all of my videos and, and check them out. And I've posted a couple recent videos that were not deemed advertiser friendly and had to click to get, you know, manual reviews done on them. And uh, one of them or two of them were, were re-monetized, but another two are up in the air right now. And it's all pretty up in the air. Uh, point being that I can't rely on YouTube really uh, for this. And I, and I guess the advertiser unfriendliness of whatever it is about my videos is... Um, I don't know if it's a little bit of swearing. I don't know if it's the content. I don't know if, you know, if, if uh, some of what I talk about on this channel, which is all about a positive message to help people and educate people, but I use words that might be controversial like cult. And so YouTube goes, ah, rah, you know, and, and uh, no, not, no, no advertisers want to advertise on anything like that. Which is, like I said, I, I, I could not more strongly disagree with what YouTube is doing. Bottom line is, if you 
enjoy the content that I produce and you would like to help me to produce more of that content on a full-time basis, which is what I do here, um, then please join me on Patreon because it is that which uh, is not going away. It's not going anywhere. And it is my most stable point of income that keeps me going, right? It's not the only thing I do in order to make money because it's not enough for me to support myself uh, with just what I make on Patreon, but it is a lot. It is the, the vast majority of what I support myself with, and I very, very, very much appreciate everyone who has contributed to what this channel is and is about and my efforts with this through Patreon. Now, just to be clear, Patreon is not a one-time deal. When you sign up with Patreon, it's a monthly recurring payment, okay? I think some people misunderstand that and they sign on to Patreon and then the next month I see them sign off and I'm like, hmm, I guess they didn't get it. <laughs> so let me be really clear that, uh, you know, I'm all about, I'm fine on getting one-time donations. Don't get me wrong. That's why I have a PayPal button. <laughs> um, and you can also, you know, contribute via uh, Google or something. But um, but Patreon is really the thing that, that really keeps this whole thing going. So... I just wanted to kind of put that out there. I'm not uh, right now in any danger of shutting down my channel or anything. It's not, it's not, not at that point. Um, and I'm, you, you know, but I'm, I, this is a concern to me, right? Uh, not getting a, a, a chunk of revenue that I have been getting is uh, concerning. And you can Google this if you want the full story on what YouTube has been doing and why they've been making these changes. Uh, YouTube is going to do what YouTube's going to do, right? They provide this platform. I use this platform. Millions of others do. YouTube can make whatever corporate decisions they want, uh, no matter how greedy or, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, whatever they were unsupportive those decisions are for people like me who are just us lowly little content creators that try to eke out a living. Uh, you know, and believe me, I'm not eking out any kind of great living doing this, but it's, it's a living and it's worth my time and worth my effort to do it because I'm helping people, which is what I've always been about. Um, you know, this, you know, there's, there's some controversy in some quarters about making money as an activist or as a YouTuber. Uh, and I think a lot of that controversy, uh, and criticism comes from people who literally have absolutely no clue how hard of a job this is. And uh, it's, it's way more than a full-time job. And, uh, and just because it looks easy doesn't mean it is easy. So anyway, enough said about all that. I just wanted to let you guys know that that's something that's happening. And it's not, you know, not great. And uh, so I could use your help to keep going here and keep doing what I'm doing. Uh, I have some really big plans for uh, the continuing my Basics of Scientology series for doing some, some very serious Scientology research into some things to get to the bottom of where a lot of this stuff comes from, why Hubbard put it together the way that he did, and how, uh, you know, and, and I, wanna, I wanna learn about this stuff so that I can apply it to other destructive cult groups as well and help in the healing and recovery process for people who get out of all of these kind of groups and also help in the big wide world, as I've made the point many times, uh, because the destructive cult mechanisms and techniques are not just limited to destructive cults. They're used in politics, they're used in religion, they're used in uh, news media, and these things are manipulative and they are harmful, and I want to do what I can to do my part to 
um, to talk about that, educate about that, and help people out so they don't fall for scammy stuff and propaganda and, and um, you know, and thought reform techniques that are used on them. So, all right, that's all that, and let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. Linda Sen. For a very long time, I was involved with the charismatic movement that has wormed its way through a lot of churches. I no longer go to church, though I do still consider myself a Christian. I've been watching your YouTube videos about being involved in Scientology. Once you got out, did you deal with a lot of anger? If so, how long did it last? If you dealt with anger, what did you do to get over it? Thanks for your question, Linda. Um, yeah, I did deal with a lot of anger, and it still crops up from time to time with various things connected with Scientology. But a lot of my um, upsets now tend to go in the direction of being upset with people who do things that just, you know, just like, what are you doing? Uh, you know, fellow activists even and stuff like that. But I keep that stuff, you know, sort of uh, behind the scenes. I don't, I don't make public displays of all that stuff. Um, as far as my, uh, my anger with Scientology, and I know that's what you're asking about, I was a very, very angry person when I first found out about the deception uh, and the level of duplicity of Scientology. And, it, and, uh, and even when I found that out, I found out, you know, as, as I continue doing this work, I keep finding that the rabbit hole goes down farther and farther and farther. But, um, but 2013, that year that I've discussed before where I went down that internet rabbit hole and found out the truth about Scientology resulted in me feeling extremely betrayed, uh, unbelievably angered, um, and very, very uh, motivated to want to do something about it. And so here I am, you know, four years later, continuing to do something about it. But I'm not anger-driven now like I was then. I decided, I made a calculated effort, uh, decision, when I started my YouTube channel that I was not going to be using my videos to channel my anger toward, you know, Scientology at you guys. I was going to talk in a very different way uh, because I feel that the best way to have content that is evergreen, you know, is always good content to, to watch, whether it's now or five or ten years from now is to just stick with the facts, be rational, you know, be rational, be reasonable, and, um, and just tell you straight what's, what's up, you know, with uh, Scientology or with critical thinking or whatever it is that I'm talking about. So, how did I deal with this anger? Um, one, having a YouTube channel and talking. Uh, this is very cathartic, right? Writing a book, writing essays. Uh, you know, I, I channeled a lot of my anger through my writing. Um, that was, and, and as I understand it, uh, as I've come to learn, um, there's even therapies that r revolve around writing out, you know, what's in one's mind and getting it out on paper and getting one's feelings and emotions out there and, and experiences and whatever other things you want to, you know, write down. And um, so I found that to be a very cathartic thing. I think uh, education was also crucial to my, to, to sort of, you know, bringing the level down on how upset I was, talking to lots of people, other ex-members, uh, family members uh, of mine, um, to, uh, to sort of like hash out the feelings and, and the mutual experiences with other ex-members. You know, this is why support groups are so great sometimes, if they're well-moderated. Um, you know, was to, uh, to be able to, to find out that I wasn't the only one that these things happened to. 
and then to find out, as I learned more about other destructive cults, to find out that Scientology wasn't even, you know, uh, the only thing where these things happened, where these abuses happened and, and uh, civil rights and human rights abuses happened, but that there were lots of other groups and destructive cults out there where these kinds of things occur and people are abused and they come out of it and they have to figure out what to do with themselves. Um, and the techniques that are used in those groups. Uh, when I, the day that really that the light went on for me, that I went, ding, you know, when I found out that other destructive cults were doing the exact same things that L. Ron Hubbard was doing, was a definitely a light bulb moment. I was like, wow. And suddenly, um, the world really did look a little different after that, you know, because I had been so focused on Scientology, so sure that you know, it was the worst of all of them and nothing else could possibly be like this experience. Yeah, that's not true. Uh, there are a lot of things that go on in, in our society and on this, on this planet of ours uh, that, are, that are very similar to Scientology, very much like it. And, um, and while Scientology is one of the worst because of the sheer number of techniques and thought reform methods that are used uh, as part of its dogma and part of its methodology, you know, where, you know, where you find like hundreds of these techniques being used in Scientology, other groups use, you know, a handful of them and, and get the results that they get on people and, and, uh, and abuse them accordingly. So, uh, anyway, that was very revelatory to me and it was very, um, enlightening and it was very calming, you know, it really chilled me out a lot. And I'm not, I couldn't explain necessarily all the psychology behind that, except that it just helped a lot to understand more about where I had been, what I had been through, and how I might now be able to do something more effective to help people in these groups, because uh, that's what education does for you, right? So I'd say uh, the combination of those factors is what helped the most. And finally, the, the other thing that really can't be ignored at this point, because it's been four years, is letting time pass and just getting some time and distance away from the whole thing. Uh, that has also, you know, there's just kind of no real substitute for that. You want to hurry it along. You want it to, you know, to, you want the process to go. You want the, whatever the five steps of grief or, or whatever the recovery process, however, whatever model you want to use to describe the process um, you know, you kind of want the process to hurry up, but it can't hurry up. It really has to just go through the time that it has to go through. So, um, so those were the things I think that, that helped, you know, kind of release a lot of my anger. I'm not particularly, you know, really angry anymore. I'm not angry at, um, at any one specifically. There are a couple people that I, that I have said I will never forgive. So I guess there's still anger there, uh, but that's a very small number of people. I mean, we're talking about you know about four or five uh, in the world of Scientology who, even if they came out, uh, you know, there I I don't know that I could ever make good with them or make up with them. Um, they're just the damage they did to my life was just too too great. Um, but uh, but that doesn't include you know former you know my my past uh, exes or or friends, or, you know, people that I knew, or anything like that, I'd, have, I'd be happy, way, way happy to get back in touch with, uh, with so many of them. So, and hope that, I really do hope that those guys get out. Uh, okay, so I think that's 
kind of the process that I've gone through to, to kind of chill. And I hope that some of that might be helpful to you in your process. And if not, um, you know, you can let me know and, uh, and I'll dig deeper and see if there's anything else I might be able to give you in terms of any advice or anything. But that's been, that's the best I can say right now from my own experience. Momo Vivi. I had to watch the famous Tom Cruise turtleneck Scientology video and I have some questions on some of the things he says. We can bring peace and unite cultures. They want help and they are depending on people who know and that's us. Know what? And how can Scientologists bring peace? I think about those people who are depending on us. Who does he think depends on Scientology? And depending on what specifically? Being a Scientologist, when you drive past an accident, it's not like anyone else. You know you have to do something about it. You know you're the only one that can really help. What is he talking about? Why would Scientologists be the only ones that can really help? And help in what way? Typically, you start by calling 911, and if possible, you may try to assist whoever involved, if possible, and at the best of your capabilities. Other than that, what would he do? Give an autograph and perform CPR at the same time? Yeah, I get the frustration. Uh, Tom Cruise especially. The guy is just so, so over the top. But he really does embody a lot of um, uh, principles and, and, and ideas that Scientologists have. And they're very delusional about the level of help that they're able to offer people. Uh, I thought, even after I got out of Scientology, that I was so much more together than I was. And I thought I really had the answers for things that I was clueless about. Uh, they really, and that's why I use the word delusionary. I mean, I, I'm, I speak from experience here. I'm not deriding Scientologists and saying they're all just a bunch of stupid delusional numbnuts. I'm saying that they are literally suffer from delusions of grandeur. And that delu those delusions of grandeur come directly from L. Ron Hubbard and David Miscavige, who love bomb and pump them up on their importance and what their and their abilities and what then you know how great they are as 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 beings and as hu as human beings and as Scientologists so much better than the rest of the you know what they call the wog world, which is a very derogatory term, um, you know, in in some circles. Uh, you know, the, the, the non-Scientology world. They really, really think, Scientologists really think they stand head and shoulders above everybody else. And they really do think that, they're, that the help that they can provide through applying Scientology, right, to people is better than any help that can be given otherwise. Um, now, this is not to say that if a Scientologist came on some guy who had a broken leg that he wouldn't think that the leg needs to be set or something. He'd want to get a doctor and he'd want to get the leg set. Uh, I mean, they're not that far gone. But they feel that if uh, they come on an accident scene, let's take, let's take this for example because it's a pretty easy one. Let's say they come on an accident scene and there's people in various states of confusion and, and don't know what to do and there's some people who are hurt and there's, and there's upset and there's people crying and all this. Uh, a Scientologist feels like he's the guy who can step up, bring order, tell people, you know, calm people down, get people to, uh, you know, they might, the, the Scientologist might have the idea that it would be helpful for people to uh, 
to uh, maybe work together to, to give each other locationals, which is look at that tree, look at that road, look at the sky, you know, like these little mini auditing procedures that they might have people do in order to get them to focus their attention outwards rather than inwards. Um, or they might feel with the accident victim that they can, you know, they can't set the leg or break, you know, set a broken bone or something, but maybe in the meantime they could get everybody to stop talking because, you know, at an accident scene there's a lot of noise and people are talking and Scientologists are really big on keeping things quiet when there's a, when there's a, a problem, uh, physical pain and unconsciousness involved because they feel that, that, that those words are going to go right into the person's, you know, reactive mind and come back at them later and, and, and make their life more difficult. So they'll try to quiet everybody down and not get people talking, try to keep the scene quiet. And they think that by doing that, they're actually doing something extraordinary and special, uh, which they're not, right? They're, they're, that's just total nonsense, this whole stay quiet at an accident thing. Uh, plus, it's kind of impossible because you need to be giving people directions. You need to get people under control, and you certainly need to give some first aid and some medical assistance to the people who need it. So, I'm just saying Scientologists would feel like they're so on top of the scene because the, the help that they're going to bring to these people is going to be so extraordinary and do so much, and really they're just, you know, make it being part of the problem in, in such a situation. So, uh, so that's some of what Tom Cruise is thinking about, right? But it really comes down to uh, Hubbard actually says in a couple of places, I think, that, uh, you know, the mere presence of a Scientologist and the, the, the positive attitude and, and, and the TRs, as they call it, right, the ability to look people in the eye and direct them on what to do is somehow, you know, so, so extraordinary and that they can provide this positive control with people that they're just superhuman. Those are some of the Scientologist super abilities that they have, right? Uh, plus, they also have the idea that they can intend things, right, to happen, and they'll just happen because Scientologists have such clean flows. That's how, that's how they put it. <laughs> you know, I got clean flows, man. Uh, so they'll, uh, you know, so they just think that that's, that they're the, the bomb.com, you know. That's kind of what it comes down to, and they are sorely mistaken. Dangerously Talented. Why is Tone 40 called Tone 40? All right, this is uh, pretty straightforward, actually. There is a scale in Scientology with 40 at the top and minus 40 at the bottom. The scale is called the Emotional Tone Scale. Uh, every emotion that is listed on the scale has a, new, has a number uh, assigned to it and is called a tone. Uh, Hubbard related emotion to the concept of motion and uh, music, right, and vibrations, right, because uh, sound or tone in music is, is a vibration. And Hubbard uh, made an analogy that emotions are like that. Uh, this was all Hubbard's, you know, pseudoscience nonsense, but this, is, this was what he was talking about with emotions, which is why they're called tones, okay? So you have this thing called a tone scale. Uh, and at the very top of it, at 40.0, is um, serenity of beingness. That is, that is tone 40. And it is, uh, you know, the highest state of emotion and ability that a spiritual being, or as they call them in Scientology, a Thetan, can accomplish or can, can reach. 
Hubbard actually says that tone 40, or being at that tone level of tone 40, uh, as opposed to, say, 4.0, which is enthusiasm, or um, if I'm remembering this right, I'm, this is all just off the top of my head, or uh, 2.0, which is uh, antagonism, or uh, 2.5, I think, is boredom. I mean, these are just different levels. 1.0, I think, is fear, and 0.5 is like, grief or something. 0.1 is apathy. I mean, it goes down. You know, zero is body death, and then there's all these emotions going below zero that are supposed to represent the degraded state of spiritual beings, or thetans. Uh, so you have total failure at the bottom, at minus 40. So, um, so at, this, at this high, high level, Hubbard said that's not even really the optimum emotion to be at all the time. That really, you should be around 20.0, and I can't remember, I think that's action. Uh, and 20.0 is, you know, this like, you know, you kind of get this idea of this lively, spirited, creating, you know, wondrous sort of thing. And it's, and it's a superhuman thing. In other words, it's not something you can express through your body. You can only express such a tone level or such an emotion as a spiritual being. Um, so now, 40, tone 40, was then later, the emotional tone scale is one thing, okay? Now, later on, or shortly thereafter, Hubbard uh, came up with this concept of, uh, of postulating things, or making a postulate. And a postulate in Scientology is, is, a, um, is a sort of creation without reservation, or intention without reservation. It's the idea that you're creating or putting something there as a spiritual being, and you have no doubts about it, no reservations about it, and so it's just going to happen. And when you can do that, that's called being tone 40, or tone 40. Uh, and the, so the idea is this intention without reservation. You're just making things happen, right? You're just on. You just got green light, man. You are go, right? In every decision you're making, if you're doing it from tone 40. Uh, and this is how, you know, like you have to understand as part of this, I mean, this all sounds very like woo-woo, and it is woo-woo because, uh, you know, the, the, the fundamental that this is based on is the idea that Thetans are creating the entire material universe all the time. Like we, we, the only reason you see things, experience things, have a body, feel anything is because Thetans as a, as a collective group all agree that this physical universe exists and, we, and we're all postulating its existence every moment in time as it continues to exist. And we've, doing it, we've been doing it for so long uh, that we kind of forgot that we're doing it, right? And we just kind of keep going. It's kind of like you don't have to think about it. It's like your heartbeat. You, know, you don't have to sit there and make your heartbeat. It just goes. Um, but Hubbard's, but that the analogy kind of stops there because you can't just will your heart to stop if you put attention on it. At least most of us can't. Uh, but Hubbard's idea is that you could, if you could get, you know, if you could regain control and mastery over your spiritual abilities, then you would be able to be in a position of cause over life. And being at cause over life means cause over your postulates, being aware of what you're postulating and being able to do it on purpose. And that's tone 40. So that's kind of, it's sort of this ultimate state of existence where anything is possible because you're just so damn good that you can just kind of think it into existence and it comes into existence.
There you go. Lena Sith Lady. Dear Chris, love your channel. It actually makes me feel a bit more sane. I was wondering if you could describe a weekly staff meeting to us. I have heard from several former staff members how those meetings were a lot like weird AA meetings with strange winds and a lot of clapping for LRH. I am interested in the topics and the interaction during those meetings. Did you feel like you had to pretend to be enthusiastic or engaging, even if the winds seemed a bit too crazy? All right, well, there's a policy letter in Scientology called Weekly Staff Meetings that provided a step-by-step -step format of how staff meetings are supposed to be run. And so I'll just kind of walk through those steps. Staff meetings were usually really boring and just kind of long, dragged out, you know, exercises that nobody was really particularly very enthusiastic about. And if there, you know, and yes, sometimes there were wins and, and announcements made and things like that. And people would ha ha, rah, rah. But it was all just part of the mindset. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, there were, you know, if you look at it now, I can look back on it and go, ooh, cringeworthy. But at the time, it was just the normal course of my life. I mean, being a staff member and being a Sea Org member, you buy into all of Scientology. And so when people are, are, are sharing wins or gains of Scientology uh, successes, you, that's, that's what you expect to be hearing. So it doesn't seem so outlandish uh, unless they got into some of those rather goofy videos that you see. We all kind of snickered at, or a lot of us snickered at those videos because they were just so over the top. And we weren't, you know, we weren't really into that too much. Um, but th those, the videos I'm talking about where the music is playing and they're, you know, fast, bang, 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 through all these Scientologists talking about their wins. Oh my God, win, 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 great, success, ah! Okay, so as far as the staff meetings go, the first step is flaps and handlings. So here, uh, from the, this is all on a weekly basis, so for the last week, Division by division or area by area, um, staff would discuss various problems or flaps that had happened, right? Some big emergency or situation that had occurred and what their handling was for that situation. So let's say that uh, there was some big plumbing leak and, you know, a whole floor had been flooded or something. And so the estates guys might need to brief on that flap. Yeah, there was a flap this week. Because, you know, there was a plumbing blow up and people got kicked out of their dorms while we had to clean it all up. And the handling is then blah, blah, blah to not only did we clean up the mess and deal with all that, but we reinforced the pipes and, you know, got new ones installed and rack racks so we're never going to have a leak again. And that might be an example of a flap and a handling. And there could be, all, I mean, I could go on all day of the, the different kinds of flaps that come up. Um, and the various handlings that were uh, demanded of the staff, you know, to deal with those flaps. And that was always the most awkward, uncomfortable part of the, the staff meeting. It was the first part uh, where you just kind of get all that out of the way and air it out and get, you know, and people get to talk about how they screwed up royally that week. And it's, um, and there was definitely shaming going on during this. This is a public shaming exercise for sure. Um, you know, it's not supposed to be. It was, you know, supposed to be the flap and the handling, right? So, you know, yeah, we had this big emergency or problem, but we handled the hell out of it and dealt with it. And, of course, if you're in the middle of the flap or you're, or the flap happened and you didn't have any handling, then it just became a big exercise in public shaming, right? Because it was like, yeah, we crashed the income this week and it's been crashed for the last six weeks and, yeah, we, you know, we, we're going to do this and this and this and this handling, and everybody kind of goes, yeah, great, whatever. 
you know, so uh, you can imagine the fun and games that, that uh, ensue from that. The next step was general business announcements. And this was not, this was obviously different from flaps. This would be things like uh, we're having an event this week or this, or this last week we had a, a general business announcement. Might be something like uh, we got, you know, we renovated the HGC, the, the auditing areas, all the auditing rooms, and that's all done now. And so, you know, the org has much better auditing spaces. Or we hired, you know, three new guys this week as a general business announcement, and they'll stand them up, and it's Joe and Mary and Sue, and yay, we got three new staff, right? That might be a, a general business announcement. Um, then you have the presentation of, of statistics and battle plans for the week. And what that means is you have the department heads, not every, in a, in a small org, you might have every single staff member talk, but generally it's supposed to be the department heads the, and the division heads, and then the senior executives of the organization. And that's, believe me, that's a lot. If you have, a, if you have all those posts filled, you're going to be there for you know, a couple hours going over all the stats and BPs. But they're supposed to present a, a, an actual piece of paper with their production statistic, whether it was up or down, and then give the, the condition. In other words, what are they going to do about that statistic? If it was up, how are they going to reinforce it? If it was down or level, then how are they going to get it up, right? That's what the battle plan, the step-by-step -step targets that they're going to do that week in order to deal with their production statistics. So uh, this, are, this is all kind of summarized. I mean, people didn't get into long sermons during these things, but they uh, sometimes droned on for a while. And so, you'd be, you know, and you'd have to go through the entire organization and get everybody's, uh, or the, at least, like I said, the division heads, department heads, their, their uh, statistics. So you see how everybody in the organization did that week production-wise and what they were planning to do in the next week. Right, and it was. It could be an informative thing uh, if it wasn't so bloody tedious. Uh, okay, then you have. Um, oh, let's see. Then after all the stats and BPs was whether there was any bonus paid out for the week, and then the executives might brief on the overall battle plan and, and direction that the org was going for this new week that uh, that it was that was now starting, and that would generally be the the. Uh, and then of course there'd be a hand for. L. Ron Hubbard, everybody claps as you know for for Hubbard at the end, um, and that's generally how it would go. And it would usually go, you know, sometimes for a couple hours. So, like I said, tedium would set in, right? Everybody was like very happy when the staff meetings were over. Uh, yeah, and uh, and sometimes they could get pretty ugly. You know, some of those flaps and handlings could get pretty ugly. Sometimes when people were presenting their statistics and the statistics were pretty down and had been down, you know, for a while, things could get pretty ugly because the executives would, you know, start like, well, what, you know, what's your, what's your battle plan for this week? Oh, well, we're going to do da-da-da-da-da. Oh, yeah? Well, what about blah, blah, blah? You know, and they might start, again, the public shaming ritual. So that's the kind of thing that would happen there. And, uh, and I think that's a pretty thorough answer for all that. Jay Moore. I saw your video on the development of Dynetics and Scientology, but I'm still not entirely clear on a couple of things. For one, how do Scientologists regard people who only use Dianetics? Can someone use Dianetics and not be a Scientologist? Also, let's say a friend and I read Dianetics and audit each other to clear, and I decide to join the church. Could I, in theory, skip the lower grades? I know that wouldn't actually happen in practice, but I'm curious to know how the church reacts to people who try to clear themselves. 
Yeah, Dianetics is really just a stepping stone onto the bridge, and that's how Scientologists consider it. Um, people can audit Dianetics all day, every day, as long as they want to, and if they get to a point where they feel that they've attained the state of clear, then they, the only way to get it validated as, as actually clear, you know, is to go into a Scientology church and to receive a special, you know, you walk in there and you go, I've been auditing, you know, 200 hours of Dianetics and I feel great and I think I'm clear. They're going to go, wow, okay, well, good on you for auditing all that Dianetics. Now, they don't even know if you've been auditing Dianetics properly or not or whether you've done it at all unless you walk in with a folder and worksheets of what you've done. They're not going to necessarily believe that you've done all that. Uh, but if you do and they, they can look at it, then they'll look at it. But, um, but they're going to want you to do the bridge, right? Because that whole bridge exists uh, for a reason. And, uh, and Hubbard said in, in various places, and, and Miscavige has said in various places, that you got to do those grades and you got to do the Dianetics. And, uh, and you got to do it in the sequence, you know, in that, in that particular sequence. So basically Dianetics is kind of relegated, like book one auditing, the kind you're talking about. Uh, where you twin up with, you know, team up with somebody and, and audit out of the book, Dianetics, Modern Science, Mental Health. That kind of thing is relegated to sort of an introductory service for Scientologists, right? It's a thing to whet your appetite and get you on the main line of the bridge to total freedom. So, uh, so if you insisted, you came in and you said, look, I've had, you know, a thousand hours of Dianetics auditing. I feel wonderful. I must be clear. And, uh, and I'm clear, damn it, and you just keep saying that, then they'll eventually get you on to what's called the clear certainty rundown. There's a special auditing action that is supposed to, uh, that the point of the clear certainty rundown is to find out exactly, you know, if you went clear, when you went clear, what happened when you went clear, and then validate that that's actually true and that you have achieved the state of clear. And if you can't cough up what's called the clear cognition, uh, in some, at some point along the line, in doing this CCRD, Clear Certainty Rundown, then you're not going to be validated as clear, okay? And that clear cognition is along the lines of, oh, I realize I've been mocking up my own reactive mind. I've been, in other words, I've been creating this thing called the reactive mind. I've been kind of putting it there. You remember I, earlier I talked about postulating things, right? So the person's supposed to come to a realization that they've been the one creating that reactive mind and they don't have to do that anymore. And so the reactive mind kind of is supposed to fade away and go away. That's your clear cognition. And unless you say something like that going in there, you know, they're not going to particularly believe that you're clear. Uh, and also, of course, you have to say that to the right people because if, the per if you're saying it to people who themselves aren't clear, they're not going to know the clear cognition because it's super hush confidential for obvious reasons. Uh, so that's part of the process of going clear in Scientology. So they're going to want you to do, you know, the lower level auditing. And, um, and they'll encourage you to do book one Dianetics. I mean, they won't stop you. You want to go in there and do that, they'll let you do it all day, every day, you know. But you will get to a point where you're going to get pretty sick and tired of it. And they're going to go, good, now move on to these, you know, the rest of the bridge. Okay, it is time for Flash Answers. Andrea Diamond. In the JWs, they have PIMOs, physically in, mentally out. In the LDS, they have shadow Mormons. 
The vast majority of the PMOs and the SMs stay in is because they don't want to be disfellowshipped or shunned. What are these types of members called in Scientology and is the main reason because they don't want to be disconnected? They are called under the radar, UTRs. And uh, yeah, the number one reason that people remain under the radar is because they don't want to be disconnected, you know, from their family and their friends. And uh, that's really the simplicity of it. Teresa Wakefield. Chris, I've watched most of your videos and quite a few from other ex-Scientologists, but I still don't understand the point of the organization. If most Scientologists believe the goal is to clear the earth, why don't they put their time, money, and efforts into getting all Sea Org members up the bridge? I'm shocked to hear so many Sea Org ex-members say they did not want auditing. I thought that was the point. Thanks for your efforts here. I'm sure you have saved lives already. Thanks, Teresa. Um, yeah, the point is to get everybody up the bridge. Um, and this is, you're actually asking a point that, you know, is exactly on the line of why I believe that David Miscavige is not really truly a Scientologist and doesn't really believe in the subject. Because if he did, then getting the Sea Org up the bridge to OT, the OT levels, would be the top priority or one of the top priorities because they're the ones who are supposed to be clearing the planet, right? Clearing the whole world. So, you know, you'd think, plus they're the workforce, they're the primary workforce of Scientology, so you'd think they're the ones who should be getting the most benefits from it. But that's not the case. And in fact, most of the time, it's exactly the opposite, where they have their study time taken away from them. They don't, you know, get auditing or training uh, to mount a hill of beans over a long, you know, over a period of time. And so the whole thing kind of goes nowhere. So... Uh, so that's why I've always said that it's, you know, kind of the whole thing is a little bit ridiculous. The point of Scientology is to make money. And that it does very well. Uper0987. If Scientology got a new leader who was actually a good person, would that organization start to grow instead of decreasing in members? Uh, well, not at this point. Scientology's dead and it just doesn't know it yet. I mean, that's really the bottom line with Scientology. Uh, I don't care who's leading it, right? But, um, but I get your point, and, uh, and no, it still wouldn't turn it around. Uh, Scientology is doomed, man. It's just not, it's not coming back. Uh, you could turn it into a kinder, gentler Scientology. I have discussed how you could actually keep it going, but it would be such systemic changes that it wouldn't even really be recognizable with Scientology anymore. So, there you go. Okay, guys, thanks very much for listening and uh, watching and, and checking out what I had to say here. I hope you found my answers informative, illuminating, educational, uh, and entertaining. Thanks for coming around. I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.